All right, well, we are in John chapter 5. If you want to turn to John chapter 5, I'm going to, uh, we're, we're going through our church calendar series. We're in Easter tide, and I kind of said this two weeks ago. We're in the Gospel of John. We're not in the resurrection accounts anymore, but John really has written his gospel for us to read it through the lens of the resurrection. We are very aware of the resurrection while we're reading through the Gospel of John. And so I, w- I want to read again this, this morning this passage. And it's even, I think, why we're going to end in verse 9. I've been following the Book of Common Prayer because it's built around the church calendar. But it ends in verse 9. I wanted to keep going. You'll see, I'll read the rest of verse 9. It's going to launch into this really fun, I think it's fun as a pastor, fun Sabbath controversy with Jesus and the religious leaders. Uh, But we we aren't going to get into that today. Maybe I'm just giving you a teaser to keep reading in John chapter 5 as you go home today. But we're going to focus on this healing, verses 1 to 9. John 5, verse 1, afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. This is one of the festivals. We don't know which one. John didn't seemed like it was important to tell us. He just tells us it was one of them. And inside the city, near the sheep gate, you can imagine the sheep gate, it's where they brought the sheep in to be sacrificed at the temple. That was the sheep gate. It's called the sheep gate. Near the sheep gate was the pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. Um, I don't know that you need to do this, but I actually, I, I, I shared it a few weeks ago. I got to go to Israel the summer, I think, before we came to Crossview. It was kind of a gift, a kind of an amazing story in and of itself. But I have pictures at these locations. The Pool of Bethesda is one of the locations that you can go to. This is the sign that's on the wall, and we'll just kind of walk through. That's it. I mean, obviously, they look different 2,000 years ago, and if you go to Israel, you've got history on top of history on top of history on top of history. There's still so much buried. But this is the actual, those are the steps of the Pool of Bethesda in the first century. That's what it looked like. And then, just so you know, I was there. That's me. I was there. I didn't just pull these from a book. I was really there. So that's Bethesda. Uh, That's where this is taking place. Obviously, it would have looked a lot different. And so in verse 3, we read that there are crowds of sick people. Multitudes, maybe your translation says. Who knows, a hundred, hundreds? There's a lot of people there. They're sick. They're ill. They're blind. They're lame. They're paralyzed. And again, just studying archaeology and history, we know that this location, though it's in Jerusalem, was not a place that only Jews came, which is kind of interesting to think about. But Gentiles would come because, and we'll get into the story associated with this pool as we keep reading in the text this morning. But even Gentiles, we even, there even at one point was, it, it was, it was devoted to the, the, the God of healing Asclepius. So we know that the Gentiles came, which, which happens. We, we are people who know when we're broken and we long for healing. And so it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile, you flock to this place because you were thinking, this was a place where maybe I will experience the healing I'm longing for. Now I'm going to jump from verse 3 to verse 5. I'll talk about why this is happening. In my translation, it does, there's no verse 4. There's a little asterisk, and verse 4 is at the bottom. I'll talk a little bit more about that. But your translation may have it right in there, maybe in italics or something. But verse 5 then says this, One of the men laying there had been sick for 38 years. I was thinking about that. I'm 43 I mean, this, sick, this, this man has been sick for basically my whole life, 38 years. And we don't know exactly, but as we keep reading, you're going to find out he can't really walk. He can't really move. He's reliant on other people to move him around. Maybe he can crawl around. And so, so as you read, most people just assume he's, he's, he's paralyzed in some way, 38 years. 
And many people often just guess just from what we paralyze from the waist down. And so one of, you know, I read several people who have spent more time in the Gospel of John than I have, just people who love Jesus and love the Word of God, and I love to hear their thoughts and wrestle with what they're thinking. And, 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 and it is interesting. You read through John 5, this man who's about to be healed in our story is an interesting guy. He's hard to like. You read all the way through John 5. Now I know what you're going to do it. I'm getting you. Why is he hard to like? Keep reading. You keep reading through John 5. He's kind of, if you keep reading all the way to John 9, now I got you. Now you're going to get all John gospel today, aren't you? You keep reading John 5 all the way to John 9. You're going to see a contrast between the man healed in John 5 and the man healed in John 9. This man is hard to like. You're not overly impressed with him as you read through. He's not going to remember Jesus. He's not going to have the, he's kind of a blamer. He's got stuff going on. And, and even one of the authors was writing and it's like, it's hard to like this guy. I don't really like this guy. But then he just paused and he's like, but I, but I, know, I know a man. I got a friend who's paralyzed from the waist down and he began to share. I won't go into detail. He got actually pretty specific. His friend's testimony of what it's like to be paralyzed from the waist down. Not be able to move, to be reliant on others. And then, again, you don't need to think about this for a long period of time, but just to get it out, it's what happens with your hygiene when you're paralyzed from the waist down? So you're, you're, you're this, this, this man, you're, you're sick, you're lying next to this pool, you want to get into the water. We'll, we'll talk about why he wants to get in the water. You think healing's going to happen in the water, but you're, you're paralyzed from the, from the waist down, and so your hygiene's not good, and you can't really move, and, and you're asking other people to pick you up and carry you. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of compassion. He is kind of hard to like if you read through John 5, but we've got compassion, 38 years. I can't even imagine. But that's what we have here. Uh, verse 6, when Jesus saw him, and we're, we're really going to probably primarily focus in on verses 6 to 9. When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, would you like to get well? I'm probably a broken record on this, but I love to point it out because I still think we have a lot to learn from Jesus on asking questions. And sitting with questions. Here's another question. Maybe this is the big question. I think you should take Jesus' questions very personally. I prayed for us for some kind of healing, but maybe, maybe even the Holy Spirit brought something to your mind that's very personal to you that you want healing from. But maybe as you're longing for that healing, Jesus is also asking you, but do you even want to get well? You know, sometimes we find so much identity in some kind of injury we have. Or maybe, again, because healing takes different levels, many of us sometimes, unfortunately, find so much. I've always struggled with this sin, and I just find so much of my identity in this sin. I wouldn't know who I was if I was healed. And so, well, do you really want to get well? Do you want to become new creation, new humanity? Are you ready for that or not? Are you hungry for life or the well that never runs dry? Jesus has it for you. But he's asking, but do you want to get well? It's a question to sit with. Verse 7, the man says, this will give us a little bit more context. I can't, sir. I've, I've no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. Well, what's going on here? 
Again, if you have those verses at the bottom of your page, or maybe they're in your page in italics or something, but, but tied to this story is this kind of legend that when the, when the water would bubble and there was an angel that was appearing, you couldn't see the angel, but the angel was appearing when the water would bubble, and so everyone with their infirmities would try to get to the bubbles first, and the thought was, if you get to the bubbles first, you'll be healed. Um, now, we actually know that there's a natural spring that was tied to this pool, and that's probably what was causing the bubbles, but this was a story circulating around. Well, this is probably maybe a conversation for another day or a, an apologetics lecture for another day, but, but what, what's going on here? Why do, you, why do you, some of us have verses in there, and why are these at the bottom, and what's going on? And, um, and so this is where it's fun to go to seminary, right? Because I did a little bit of work with textual criticism. That's something that maybe you should check out. There's books that you could look into just to give you confidence. When you talk about historical reliability of, of literature, there is nothing that comes close to the Bible. It's actually incredible. We have so many manuscripts. It's amazing. So much confidence that we have the Bible that God wants us to have. But we have those manuscripts in varying from varying different times. And so what, what the translators are trying to do is to give us the oldest, most reliable. So the oldest, most reliable transcripts don't have these verses here. They, they show up in later ones. And, and you know, you could imagine a scribe was just trying to write it in to fill in what was going on in the background. So, you know, our, our, our translators are trying to present us with what's most reliable. Um, so anyway, that's what's going on. So that's why we don't have those verses there. But it, gives, it does give us a little bit of context, a little bit of story about this. So I can't. Someone always beats me there. I want to get there. I want to get to the bubbles in my mind, and we'll talk about that. That's, that's how I'll get healed, if I can get to the bubbles. But Jesus then says to him, stand up, get up, arise. Pick up your mat and walk. So Jesus says, you don't need to get the bubbles because you have me. Get up, arise, walk. And as frustrating as this man is, we'll talk about this too, because sometimes healing comes in seasons. He's going to be physically healed here, and he really is because he responds. Jesus says, get up, and the man stands up. He picks up his mat, he walks. He, he obeys the voice of his Lord. But as you keep walking, walking through the story, you're going to see, well, he's still not all. He's still got, there's, some, there's, some, there's some healing below the skin that still needs to happen for this guy. I'll say it that way. Anyway, John tells us instantly the man is healed. I mean, that's instantly the man is healed. Get up, he's healed. I mean, it's just awesome. I love it. And he rolled up his sleeping mat and he began walking, but this miracle happened on the Sabbath. So that's what leads into the further story. And I wanted to spend more time on this because I think it's really interesting. If Jesus had just told him, stand up and walk, the whole controversy would swirl around Jesus. Jesus is the one who's in the religious leader's eyes breaking Sabbath. We know Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, so he can't break it. <laughs> but in their eyes, he's breaking Sabbath, and so he's violating their rules, their religious rules, and he's the center of the controversy. But this is what's interesting. Jesus invites this man to pick up his mat. And I was just thinking, I mean, this is a sermon for another, but I was just thinking about it. It's interesting. If Jesus hadn't invited him to pick up his mat, he wouldn't be tied to the controversy and you wouldn't have what follows. But because he invites him to pick up his mat, this man has now also done work on the Sabbath and violated their rules. And he's now a part of the controversy and he doesn't want to be. 
But I was just thinking about, I mean, if you're going to respond to Jesus and step into the life that he offers, you're going to find yourself in the midst of his controversies. That's just, it was interesting to me. Anyway, so let's walk through this. I've got three points. The first thing I want to talk about is kind of a bigger picture, the value of human beings. We're talking about healing and providing healing for those of us who need healing, the value of human beings. When Jesus arrives at this festival, he does not go to the palace or to the places of mass appeal in the city. He doesn't go to the tourist sites in Jerusalem. He goes to the place of major need in the city. I mean, think about this. Hundreds of beggars are gathered around this pool, and that's where Jesus goes, intentionally and on purpose. Not to the temple, not to the fun places. He goes where human desperation is visible. A lot of times we don't want to see that. That's where Jesus goes. He goes where people are suffering with agonizing pain. 38 years. He goes where people are constantly dealing with broken and frustrated hopes. That's where Jesus goes. you got to see that. In fact, and I've said this before, but it's something I didn't really realize prior to this year, but in my gospel studies this year in the series we're going through, it has become more and more apparent and very exciting to me as Jesus is turning things upside down in his kingdom. Again, we talked about manuscripts and how many manuscripts we have in the New Testament, but there's all kinds of ancient literature. And folks, most ancient literature doesn't say anything about beggars. Most ancient literature doesn't say anything about people who are paralyzed from the waist down for 38 years. Those are people that the authors of history ignore. But you understand Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when they are recording the events of Jesus' life, guess who they have to talk about? The beggars. The beggars named Bartimaeus. I mean, some of these guys have names. That doesn't happen in other ancient history literature. It happens in the Gospels because that's where Jesus goes. He is turning every little status thing we have upside down. I think it's incredible. That's what Jesus is doing. And he's doing the work of his father. And he's healing people. Now, I don't have a slide for this, but if you were to keep reading, again, you're going to want to keep reading. In John chapter 5, verse 17, he's in the midst of this controversy. And Jesus replies, my father is always working and so am I. My father is always working and so am I. So we get to see some of the work that Jesus is doing. And it's healing people. Now, he singles out one person. I think this is important as well. There's a lot of people. I mean, this is where I prayed this. There is so much mystery. Do I think Jesus can heal? Yes, I do. Miracles, yep. Some of you have stories. You have them. I mean, you get to know people. Some people have miracle stories. I think Jesus can do it. Does he do it for everybody all the time? No. Why? Mystery. I can confess more than I can explain. What I can tell you is there's a lot of people who needed healing. Jesus singles out one person. Why? I mean, in John's gospel... There's real, I mean, John is writing a gospel and it revolves around seven signs. This is one of the signs, but it's a sign that Jesus is involved in the work of healing. We're supposed to see this, experience it in very cool relational ways. He's giving us a sign that healing is the kind of work that the body of Christ should be engaged in. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, Now that means a lot of things. It means praying. If you're new to CrossView or if you've forgotten, some of us have kind of forgotten this since before the pandemic, but you can fill out cards and ask for prayer requests. We are a praying church. We are a praying church and there are people in our church who want to pray, intercede on your behalf. 
let us pray for you. Join us in prayer. We want to pray, and we want to pray for all kinds of things. Now, we will trust. We won't tell God what to do. We'll talk about this in just a minute. We'll trust in his goodness and his timing, but we're still going to ask because we can. You got something you'd bother? Ask! And let Jesus do what is good. He'll do what is good. Might not be what you want, but it'll be good. And he might even surprise you sometimes. We want to be a praying church. We want to be a church that lays hands on one another. Whenever I have somebody up front and I pray for them, I always put my hand on their shoulder. People have done that for me. Sometimes I just... Just feeling the, the, their hand. If, if you're, maybe even before you leave, you've got something going on in your life. Maybe there's somebody in here that you trust. Just have them put their, I'll, I'll do it. Just put your hand on your shoulder. We lay hands on you. Just pray. Just ask God. We'll trust him. He's good. But we'll ask. James talks about we can gather the elders and anoint you with oil. We can talk about why he says that. I think there's reasons. But if we'll do that, we're a praying church. We're going to ask God for incredible things. We will keep asking. And keep asking and keep asking because the body of Christ is called to be a part of the healing work of Christ. He's a healer. That's what we'll do. But I also want to be clear that it also means that we will, some of us will become doctors. And some of us will become nurses and some of us will work in hospitals and build hospitals. Some of us will be counselors and therapists. We're called to the healing. And when we do that work, we're doing the healing work of Christ. And the rest of us will pray for you in your work. I love to pray for you doctors and nurses. I love to pray for you. You're doing the work of Jesus, the healing work of Jesus. You are taking what we've learned as we've studied God's good creation. And with great enthusiasm and energy, you are applying what we've learned about the human body and your compassion and your care. You're directing it towards stopping sickness and disease. And we are so thankful for it. As I said, I want to do a little bit big picture. Did you know that hospitals are a Christian innovation? Did you know that? Hospitals would not be a thing if it wasn't for followers of Jesus who have worked out the trajectory of the love of God. They've kept their eyes on Jesus. It's so key. And as they follow Jesus and begun to think, well, what does the love of Jesus mean in this broken and hurting world? Well, hospitals have been built. <laughs> in fact, I, I read this. I, sometimes I go back and forth on whether or not I should read. John, John Orberg has a book called Who Is This Man? I've mentioned it before. I think it's a great book. In the book, what he does is he just walks through some of the things that happen only because of Jesus or his followers. It's it's a fascinating read. There's so many things that you take for granted because they've always been there or somebody else is leading it now instead of the church. And so you think somebody else, the church started it. The compassion of Jesus started so much of the good work that happens in our world. Orberg writes about... um, he, I won't read it all for the sake of time this morning, but, but he writes about this, this, these epidemics. I'll just put it in my own words. These epidemics. Marcus Aurelius, I mean, real history, the year 165, and these epidemics, they think it might have been smallpox or something that, that knocked out a third to a fourth of the population, including Marcus Aurelius itself. And he talks about Homer and, and the Greek god Zeus and all, all, these, all these leaders in Greek and Roman culture. None of them say care for the desperate and the sick. No, if you read the accounts of history, they were, people were dying. They were so afraid. They were just throwing bodies. Just get away. Like, I, I want nothing to do with this. But I will read to you what Dionysius, a third century bishop of Alexandria, wrote about this other community, this community of people who followed someone named Jesus who touched lepers even though they were considered unclean. 
This man named Jesus who told his disciples, go and heal the sick. This man named Jesus who gave this parable, he said, oh man, I, well done, good and faithful service. You, you, you fed me when I was hungry. You clothed me when I was naked. You cared for me when I was sick. When did we do that, Jesus? When you did it for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. And there were this group of people in these early centuries of the church who believed Jesus. And they actually went out and did it. Well, we're serving Christ. Every time we do this, we're serving Christ. So this, these plagues were breaking out. And this is what Dionysius writes. Heedless of the danger, these Christians took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. But they did that because they believed Jesus was resurrected and they had nothing to fear, right? It's crazy. And even, some of you will know the name, Emperor Julian the Apostate in the late 4th century. It's actually funny. Things started to turn so much that he's like, guys, guys, guys. He calls them, what does he call them? The, uh, the impious Galileans. That's what he called the Christians. The impious Galileans. These impious Galileans are caring for their sick, and now they're caring for our sick, and it's making us look bad. Maybe we should start caring for ourselves. Well, no one ever thought of it before Jesus and his followers. And so then you get to some of, some of my favorite early church fathers, Basil the Great and Gregory of Nyssa. And they were looking at lepers and they said, you know what, these lepers, they don't have any money, but we're gonna create a space for them. We don't, we're not gonna ask for money. We're gonna, we're gonna gather them together and care for them. We'll, 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 we'll raise the money. And Gregory of Nyssa preached this sermon. He said, lepers have been made in the image of God in the same way you and I have and perhaps preserved the image better than we do. So let us take care of Christ while there is still time. Let us minister to Christ's needs. Let us give Christ nourishment. Let us clothe Christ. Let us gather Christ in. Let us, let's, let us show Christ honor. And if some of you are a bit of historians in the church, you know about the Council of Nicaea. At the Council of Nicaea, where we get the Nicene Creed from, they also decreed that wherever a cathedral existed, there must be a hospice, a place of caring for the sick and poor, which is the beginning of hospitals. That's where hospitals begin. And that is why, I mean, how many hospitals are Good Shepherd Hospital and Good Samaritan Hospital and St. Peter's and St. Andrew's? It's not because the biggest donor was a Christian. It's because hospitals were a Christian thing. Because the healing work of Jesus is what we're a part of as the body of Christ. So where the sick and suffering silently endure their pain, where the bruised and battered wait for help that never seems to come, where the failures and the forgotten live lives of quiet desperation, that is where we find Jesus Christ at work. And if we want to work with him, that's where we are invited to work. Well, how about this? I want, the second point I wanted to make is the value of this question. You know how much I love questions. I gave you kind of a big picture of what the church can be. Maybe excite your imagination. Times are changing, and maybe it's time for some new imagination for the church. Our predecessors came up with hospitals. What are we going to come up with to care for those in need, right? So I love this question. You, you, I think sometimes it's good to know big stuff, but, but real change comes when you and I meet Jesus. And I've already kind of talked about it, but, but Jesus is going to come to you and he's going to ask you a question. But here's why I think it's okay, for, because Jesus is good. 
He's so good. This is his approach to you. He's not manipulative. He's not going to force you. He's going to come and invite you with questions. And I was reading somebody else this week, and they were talking. They were, it, was, it was kind of on a different subject, but they were talking about what's going on in our culture today. And they were talking about power and goodness, which I see in this text. Jesus has unbelievable power. Arise, and he can walk. All right, 38 years, all gone. Power, the power of Jesus. But then the goodness, his approach, his love, his compassion, his question, do you want to get well? His, his compassion to even show up there to begin with. I mean, just the goodness of Jesus. And one of the guys I was reading this week said, power minus goodness is fear. Always creates fear. That's, I mean, there's a lot of fear in our world today. There's a lot of reasons for it. But one of the reasons is there's all kinds of, we're seeing power all over the place. We're recognizing where we don't have power. And when the person who has that power that you don't have and you don't trust them to be good, the natural result is fear, right? That's why we feel fear. Because some people have power. We don't think they're good. You're not going to use your power for my good. And so we have fear. But, 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 I hope you see the difference with King Jesus. King Jesus is good. He is so good. And so you have absolute power and perfect goodness. And what does that produce? Not fear, but faith. Now you're ready to trust. Jesus, you have power. You're mysterious to me. I don't always know how you work, but you're so good. That's what Paul says in Romans 8, 28. Even when everything looks bad, God is working good because he is good and he wants good for you. I mean, I've, I've, I've shared this with you guys, and I do this even reflect with some of you sometimes. You're, you're sharing your story, and, and then you're highlighting what Jesus is doing, and I'm like, whoa, what did you just say? Did you realize what you just said? You just said this, that's bad. You just said this, that's bad. You even said what you did and that was bad. But now you're giving testimony to Jesus because somehow he took bad and made good. That's something only Jesus Christ does, folks. Somehow he takes bad and works good. He's so powerful, he's so good. I think about that all the time. I, I, I wonder, I marvel, Jesus, I, I don't deserve this. I did this, I did this, I'm wrong, this was bad but you're working it for good. Now it's painful. I've got some confessing and repenting to do, but wow, look at the good you're working. The story doesn't make sense unless I talk about Jesus because he's bringing good, right? He's powerful and he's so good and you can trust him. So I think he gives a lot of dignity to the man. Do you want to get well? I mean, he's not going to make it. Do you want to get well? But I also think the questions, this is why Jesus' questions are so powerful and important. They help you diagnose your problem. There's this question. There's many questions that Jesus asks. Sometimes, sometimes you read it, it's like he's like a doctor. What's your name? How long has it been like this? How long have you been hurting? Can you see anything? I mean, he's asking all kinds of questions that the great physician will ask to help you see your problem. Because some of you, you got, you got some sin to confess. You've got some stuff to repent from. Jesus wants to lead you into pastures of new life. Trust him for new things. He's not manipulative. He's good. It won't be easy. We always say this. You can't go around your pain. You have to go through it. You have to be honest. Which is going to lead me to my third point. My third point is the value of trusting Jesus. When Jesus says, get up, this word is regularly used in the New Testament to describe the resurrection. And this is part of the inner secret of Jesus' work here. He isn't trying to use one force within the existing creation to put right something else that's gone wrong within the same old creation. 
In other words, I want you to think about this in light of this man wanting to be healed. This man thinks, my only hope for healing within my little small world that I live in is to get to the bubbles before somebody else does. That's what he's thinking. But Jesus isn't like, all right, well, let me carry you to the bubbles. Jesus is going to bring radical life from himself to this man. He's going to work outside the system that this man thinks his healing has to work into. Jesus is bringing life, new life, new creation. It's bursting through into the present world, bringing all kinds of new possibilities. That's what Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, as the church in Easter, that's what we should. Jesus, what's the new possibilities before us? Here at Crossview in DeKalb County, what's the new possibilities for us as a church family? And as we seek to love those hurting in our community like our predecessors, did. What are the new possibilities that await us, Jesus? Jesus is inviting. And that's what, and that's what, that's what launches the controversy. If you keep reading in John 5, I know you're going to do it now. If you keep reading in John 5, that's, that's what sparks the controversy because people get threatened by new possibilities. But as followers of Jesus, if we, if we keep, we, we got to keep our eyes on him. There's plenty of things that could distract us. But I'm telling you, we keep our eyes on him and we walk together We might go into new possibilities, but they're going to be amazing. We might even get swept up into the controversy that Jesus gets swept up in. But Jesus is in with it. He's in it with us. Where better place could we be? Jesus is there. Because he's powerful and he's good. So again, this man is at, Jesus says, do you want to get well? And this man says, in essence, I'd love to get well, but I'm blocked from pursuing the only way I know how to get well. I'm excluded from getting well according to how I know it works. There's all these obstacles. Maybe there's hygiene issues. People don't want to touch me. No one will carry me in. Even if someone does, somebody's faster to get to the bubbles than me. I can never get there. There's so many obstacles. And I want you to pause even now. I mean, there's so many things that maybe the Holy Spirit could bring to your mind that you might blame. That might be obstacles that you think are keeping you from getting healed. But I want to name two of them that I think are pretty prevalent in our culture today. The first is this thought that Jesus is going to heal me if I just numb myself from my pain. We've almost adopted this view that we are like computers and life starts to get hard and we start to have problems. And so rather than dealing with the problem, we just shut down, go to bed, and then wake up in the morning and assume you'll just be magically better, right? There's all kinds of ways that our culture is encouraging us to numb ourselves and to disengage and not be honest about what's really going on in our lives and in our world. And this is where I think Jesus is awesome. He's always gracious, but he's always truthful. He's always inviting, but he's also always challenging. And he's coming to you with questions. What do you want me to do for you? What do you really want? Is that what you really want? Do you want to be healed? Have you noticed this part of your life that you're ignoring? Can we talk? I I think Jesus is probably many of us. I actually think many of us. Jesus is coming to us daily and saying, can we talk about this now? Okay, you don't want, okay, I'll wait till tomorrow. This is holding you down. Can we talk about it now? Oh, oh, you want to go? Okay, never, tomorrow. I'll be here. I will be here until you're ready to talk about this, but you will not be free until you talk about this. This is where I want to heal you. So, 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 So show up and meet with Jesus. Now, some of you are like, I never do that. I'm the opposite. I'm going to get it done myself. I'm striving. I got these problems. I know what's wrong with me, and I'm going to fix me. And I'm going to work. I'm going to will myself. Self-help, I'm going to will myself to health. How's it going? 
one of the things I think Jesus is often, I mean, sometimes we think, well, I pray this first prayer. He saves me from my sins, but then I save myself. No, Jesus is always your Savior every day. So some of you are trying to heal yourself on your own strength and your own intelligence. It's not going to work. You still need to find a way to surrender to Jesus. You may be really intelligent and really, you've got to figure out a way to invite Jesus in in a way where you're going to let him lead. And you're going to surrender. You've got to do some surrender. Maybe you need to surrender. Some of us need to show up and some of us need to surrender. Jesus says, I love your passion, but that's not how this is going to happen. That's what, and it's almost like what you see here with this man. Jesus says, he doesn't say, I'll get you into the water. He bypasses the whole system and just heals him with a word, which is better for everybody, right? That's what he does. We, we, we tend to think that we know what flourishing is going to look like and how we need to get there. And again, this, it, this impairs our prayer life because we're like, okay, Jesus, I need you to heal me this way. I don't want to heal you that way. It's not good for you. Trust me. I want to heal you this way but we need to have an imagination and an openness and a surrender to say, all right, Jesus, new possibilities, new creation, new life, let's do it. This is outside the old creation. It feels a little scary, but you're good, so I'll trust you. I know you're powerful, but I also know you're good, so I'll trust you. That's who we want to be, church. We want to be the kind of people, both collectively and individually, who so trust in the resurrection that we participate in this new creation work that Jesus is doing. Doesn't that sound exciting? I mean, life is an adventure, and you and I are invited into this. So healing. I'm going to pray again for us. I prayed at the beginning. I'll pray at the end. But again, maybe maybe you're asking God for physical healing. Again, it's mysterious how he works, but ask. Ask whatever you want. And trust in his goodness. Maybe it's mental healing, emotional healing. Maybe it's relational healing. Maybe it is forgiveness. That's one way to think about forgiveness. It's your soul is sick with sin. If you're new to Christianity, that's where it begins. You confess your sin, but you actually, you have to show up. You actually have to say, Jesus Christ, I believe you are my Lord and my Savior. I believe you died on the cross and I believe you rose again. You have to show up and meet Jesus. But then he, he, he heals your soul that is sick with sin. Let Jesus heal you. Oh, so let's pray. Jesus, that's what we ask. I mean, we are using the word healing broadly as I pray it out. But each one of us individually, I think, Holy Spirit, you are directing us to a specific way of healing. And this is where maybe we do want to stop telling you what that healing needs to look like and how it needs to happen. This man spent 38 years thinking he needed healing to happen a certain way, and it never did. And the first time he meets you, he walks, Jesus. Would you do stuff like that in our church? Maybe it's physical healing. Maybe it's emotional healing. Maybe it's mental healing. Maybe it's relational healing. Maybe it is just freedom from the bondage of sin. All of it is a miracle and a gift, and it's the work that you do, Jesus. And we want to join you in that work, but we really do need you to do it in our life first. And then we need to learn how you did it so that we can partner with you as you do it in others. Uh, Jesus, would Crossview be a church where healing happens? Because that's the kind of work you do, and we want to work with you. In your name we pray, amen.